0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host Marcus Lure, and uh, excited to cross over to London again today to catch up with Alex Inglot. Welcome to the podcast,
1: Alex. Thank you very much, Marcus. Appreciate you having me. Yeah,
0: I'm looking forward to the next hour here, diving deep into your career and, of course, uh, what you're currently doing. And you currently are the commissioner of the ESL Pro League. So, but we'll get back to that later. What that means. Uh, but your background is in uh, is is from the legal side you were a lawyer by training and of course spent a illustrious career around the world of sports uh, which we're really going to be exploring now and so some of some people might recognize you from the ATP tour or other roles you played before with sports radar etc so we're going to uncover all that but as we always do we'll kind of start how it all started and um, from what I can see here you uh went to school at the University of Oxford. So you were a prestigious university there. got yourself a degree in law, I believe. Um, and I That's think right. you also played volleyball there. So take us back there and uh, start a bit. Give us some background on that and uh, how it sort of ended up with your first job there, which from the looks of it was, was IMG.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I kind of grew up in a sports house, which I think is probably a little bit cliched for people who end up working in the, in the business of sport. My father was a professional soccer player um, in Poland oh, nice. uh, before he emigrated to, to the UK. Um, and so when we were growing up, we were very big into football slash soccer. Yeah. Uh, I was a QPR fan. My brother was an Arsenal fan, so he okay. had a much better time Ooh. of it than I did. Um, <laughs> but we kind of then, I think we, we moved across from soccer in our pre-teens, early teens across to tennis. I think he moved across to tennis when he was about eight or nine. I kind of followed him because obviously as a Older brother, I can't let him be better than me at anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but by that time, I was too late. He kind of got himself involved in the kind of the national tour, junior tour system in tennis, and was kind of rising through the ranks there. Uh, and I kind of around seventeen moved into volleyball uh, from tennis to volleyball. Um, my math teacher at school was Polish, and he said, "Listen, Alex, a you're Polish, b you're coordinated, c you're tall." basically you have to play volleyball those three ingredients make it a kind of a foregone conclusion so I kind of joined him uh with the kind of school volleyball squad and kind of did really well at that so that's kind of that's the background to sport um and I always I, I, I love the industry I always find the industry fascinating and I think the reason I went into law was because I did find law interesting in of itself, but more from a historical point of view. Uh, my kind of, It all really started with the Nuremberg trials, which is obviously not a very light topic, but mm. it was where we met law. That's kind of where my interest got peaked, And then I started to realize that a lot of people in sports administration seem to have kind of walked a path through some kind of legal. Yes, plenty law. of. Exactly. So I thought, actually, if I do law, then there's a path that goes from law to kind of legal practice to in house sports law hmm. to sports administration. So I thought that was the path I was going to tread. And that was kind of really where I started the journey um, in Oxford doing a law degree with that in mind. I played volleyball for Oxford, uh, and got a half blue there for, for the three years I was studying there. Nice. Uh, yeah, So that was kind of really where it started to take shape, I guess, the path. Hmm.
0: Well, it makes a lot of sense, and yeah, I mean, look from the likes of Mark McCormick and others who are lawyers. Um, there's definitely, and I have plenty of others uh, on the podcast already. So, uh, for everyone listening, I think yes, the the legal route is there, uh, and it's it's a well trodden path there. So, now you so you you graduated then, and I think later on you actually did a you did another degree, uh, you did a FIFA Masters as well, right? Um, that, but that came obviously quite a few years later, um, to add on top of uh, the, the degree from Oxford. But then your first job was ended up. uh, I think you did a sort of almost like an internship. I think it was was with IMG, right, Uh, for the uh, what was it, the Rugby World Cup, or?
1: Yeah, it was. I spent about ten months at IMG. So I started off with the kind of the six month internship at Comperia Research, Mm -hmm. um, in the Chiswick headquarters of IMG, uh, and that was Comperia was kind of their sponsorship uh, impact evaluation kind of. Subsidiary, right. um, and so it was. It was kind of a traditional or a very well trodden internship path into the kind of IMG headquarters. Right. I spent six months there with a bunch of other kind of graduates who were all looking to make their first step. Mm-hmm. Um, in but for me, it was kind of I was in an interesting position because I already knew that I was going to go into law after this year. Uh, so I took this year as a kind of let's see what the sports industry is a little bit more close up to see if it's right. in fact what I want to kind of really navigate my career towards. So I did six months at Comperio. After I finished that, I started working in the IMG rugby team in the lead up to the 2003 Australian Rugby World Cup with Nick yeah. Chesworth, who's a who at the time was a heavyweight uh, IMG. And I was just helping him with the contracts and policing the contracts and clarifying the contracts for the teams and the team sponsors and the broadcasters to try and make sure. It was a time when there was a lot of changes being made to what teams and sponsors had got accustomed to receiving as world cup sponsors and to what they were now receiving there was a lot of kind of big more limitations so i was kind of thrown into the deep end of calling up companies like itv or or france telecom and letting them know that unfortunately the activation ideas that they had in mind when signing up for these um, world cup um, sponsorship deals were not actually going to be the ones that they were going to be able to deliver because they were the things had changed and the contracts were not the same as they used to be. So, I didn't make those, uh, didn't make friends when I made those calls. But um, <laughs> yeah, you
0: weren't very popular uh, with those ones. Obviously. No,
1: not at all. Um, but it was a really great experience because, again, it was kind of a, a good way to marry my legal background uh, through, through yep. kind of effectively reading, interpreting, and policing contracts yep. while being involved in in the Rugby World Cup, which obviously was really super exciting. At the time back in 2002,
0: 2003. Actually, that reminds me of uh, David Falk's story, how he started. When he first joined, he basically got thrown all the NBA contracts, uh, which Donald <laughs> Dell's company at that time had. under uh, had, And he had to basically, you know, just read and memorize them and whatever, file them. And on the back of it, he became the master then, obviously, later on of those because he knew these things inside out. So it's uh, it's a good yeah. way to get involved for sure. So then you, you had a couple of years, obviously, in, uh, in the, let's call it, traditional um, uh, law firm, right? I think here was uh, SG Bourbon or so. Uh, um, so that's you know where you I guess uh, got your you know uh, feet wet uh, in the real world of of the
1: legal world. Yeah, it's that the, the the kind of the big plan that I kind of just outlined this whole kind of path from uh, studying law through to sports administration. Uh, this is where the path kind of slightly faltered. Um, so I, I joined Denton Wild Sap. I got a training contract at Denton Wild Sap, which at the time had one of the best. Uh, sports law practices in the country. Yeah. Uh, um, and just as I was walking in through the, through the door, they were all walking out because they'd basically 90% of that team or 95% of that team had just basically moved to uh, DLA, the American law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really unfortunate timing for me because i picked the right firm at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I spent my two years at Denton, well, it was almost impossible to get a sports law um, kind of seat. Uh, and, and that really derailed my plans. I was talking to recruiters about what I was going to do after my uh, training contract. They said, hey, just do corporate commercial work for a couple of years and you'll easily kind of move across into a sports practice after that. I'm not sure if that was <laughs> fully honest or not, to be perfectly honest, but it's what I did. Uh, went to SJ Bowen and joined their kind of corporate team for a couple of years. And and just as it was like two, two and a half years, and I was like, right, I've done, the, the, you know, I've done what they recommended I do. I'm now going to go and look into the sports world, sports practice world, and you know, make that seamless transition that I've been promised. <laughs> That's when the, um, the credit crunch, the, you know, the uh, Lehman Brothers, the whole yeah, cr- economic economics. crisis happened. Right. And at that point, all the recruiters were like, listen, my friend, uh, if I were you, I would hold on with my feet and hands to whatever job you've got. And trust me, you're not going to get a move across to sports because there's like tens of sports lawyers being fired left, right and center. If if there are any roles opening up, they will get it before you. So, you know, hold on for two or three years, ride out the economic crisis and you'll be, you know, a well-established corporate lawyer. And I was like, that is absolutely not on my script. And that's when the FIFA master kind of came in. My FIFA master, the FIFA, the point of the FIFA master was that I felt like the organic path that I had. Um, kind of fashion for myself, Mm. had been disrupted by the economic crisis. So I had to do something a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more um, unorthodox. And Mm -hmm. that's why I thought that the FIFA master for a year would give me a a stepping stone into the sports industry through a different path. And so that's kind of why I signed up for that course and spent whatever it is, 10, 11 months uh, studying in three different cities in Europe um, and meeting people from 20 different countries. Yeah,
0: and well, from the looks of it, obviously that worked well. And if you think of it for others uh, listening, um, that is a that's a smart way, of course, to getting into then the industry because you will meet the powers and and to be there. Um, now, interesting enough, then your your first job then, so maybe on the back of that somehow. Looks like ended. You ended up in Mexico, is club called Atlante FC. So, you know, talk us through that a bit because it's in Cancun, and and I, I studied in the US. The only reason I know Cancun is because that was where everyone goes for spring
1: break. So, but what, yep. what did
0: bring you there?
1: <laughs> yeah, So on the course that I did in the FIFA Master, and I think this is one of the benefits of the FIFA Masters. You you meet a bunch of people who are either about to start their journey or who are already on a journey right. um, in the sports. Um, industry. And I met a guy uh, named Miguel Cuchonel, whose father was the CEO effectively of Atlanta Football Club.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and so when as we were studying together, we became friends. Um, and he basically kind of, for want of a better phrase, he headhunted two or three of us to come and join him and try and kind of really help Atlanta's next step, next phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The kind of the background for Atlanta was that they had they were a historic, well-established football club out of Mexico City, but they had just recently moved from Mexico City, which is obviously quite a dense and cluttered market. Mm -hmm. They had moved to Cancun in the belief that if they go to that Quintana Roo um, area of Mexico, where there aren't any top. elite football clubs they would be welcomed with open arms okay. everyone would become their fans and they would basically corner and own a, a, a substantial market right. the problem for that they didn't quite get their head around was that actually a cancun is full of mexicans who obviously service the kind of the hotel and tourism industry there but actually they all come from different parts of mexico themselves mm-hmm. they they kind of they emigrate to Cancun as workers, right. but they all come there wearing their Monterey shirt or their Chivas shirt <laughs> right. or their Ameri- Club America shirt. So all of our games at the stadium were basically away matches because we were, uh, Atlanta fans were completely swamped by uh, yeah, the, the locals okay. who were supporting the team that had come. Who, who actually came Cancun. to town. Right, okay. Exactly. So so one of the things that we were tasked to do as we came across to um, Atlanta, um, was to try and build a stronger relationship between the region and the club. There was a lot of rumours circulating that the club was quite mercenary and was just looking for the next region to go and get government grants from, and so they would, you know, pull roots and up sticks at a moment's notice if they thought that they could get a better deal in Acapulco or somewhere else. Mm. And so, so I think that made a lot of stakeholders and fans a little nervous about investing in the football club because it could be here today gone tomorrow so we really had to try and kind of cement and and crystallize and strengthen those relationships between the the club and the region and so it was that was kind of it it was an interesting uh, um, it was an interesting kind of opportunity generally because we weren't quite sure what we were getting into when we landed we had a few ideas about what we wanted to do and found actually there are a bunch of doors that were closed to us mm-hmm. like more like commercial developments or stadium developments those were things that were like they just weren't going to put into our interest so we kind yeah. of we had to be quite dogged me and this brazilian guy who joined me um andres anota who actually now is the sporting director of fc dallas very successful um Maybe. soccer operator yeah, in, the, yeah, in the in the yeah, americas yeah, um uh, he spent years in Palmeiras, in Gremio, in uh, Santos. So he, he's very well established in Brazilian football and now North American football. But we were there trying to think, what can we do if the obvious things that we would like to do are not available to us? And that's why we we focused on this kind of relationship, community outreach. Um, and so we did, we we kind of formalized alliances with established franchises in the region, like hmm. the, uh, the the baseball team, the basketball team, we established links with local charities and, and charitable initiatives. We did a lot of work with local schools uh, to try and kind of bed um, uh, the relationship. You know, if, if mum and dad are already wearing chivas in Monterey, can we get Junior uh, to wear a, a, an Atlanta shirt by kind of exposing him to Atlanta uh, while he's at school or, you know, during the holidays with football camps and things like that? So that was some of the stuff that we were trying to push through. So it was a really hustler type kind of situation where you had to just make opportunities uh you know uncover your own opportunities and execute against them mm. uh and i spent a year there before i thought okay that was quite eye-opening it was a great experience living in cancun and that kind of environment and climate is never a bad uh, experience but yep. um it was after that year that i thought it's time to get back to to the, the uk the to real home. World. yeah and and, and <laughs> A a very different world, let's put it that way, uh, and see, see if I can kind of get a little bit more of a firmer footing and a firmer kind of road to development uh based more in in western europe
0: yeah makes sense well actually your sort of start kind of reminds me of my own start when i first came to asia which is about 15 years before the story we were just talking about but it was similar i was thrown in here and i was managing the asian basketball confederation um not that i knew much about basketball or asia in that sense but uh you know you just have to figure it out and you know you go with the flow (laughs) yeah you make it up um (sighs) So now let's talk JTA then, uh, so that you're back in London now. We're in the sort of 2011 here. Maybe just quickly explain who they are and then a bit what you did uh, during that period of time.
1: Yeah, JTA is, I guess, a comparatively small outfit, um, but really very highly respected and heavyweight in the area that it uh, historically has focused on, which is... Um, brand building, communications, lobbying and international relations in and around the Olympic space. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it was created by John Tibbs, hence uh, JTA, John Tibbs Associates. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he's very well known in that circle, very well respected in that circle. And I did a little bit of work with him, uh, kind of almost like a semi internship basis before I went to the FIFA master. Uh, And so when I came back to London, I kind of literally just checked in with him to see how he was doing. I didn't really have any, even any hopes that anything would come of it. It was just more etiquette or just, you know, you know, trying to be polite and catch up with someone now that I'm back in the UK. And it just so happened that he had signed a, for him relatively unorthodox client, but a super exciting one for him and for me, which was Manchester United corporate communications. Um, They had decided to go with JTA um, to help them, uh, with their uh, kind of comms objectives at that point in time. This was kind of round about the time when they were facing a lot of backlash from the Glazers. Okay. The Glazers had just come in. So this was when it was the Glazers out campaign. The green and yellow scarves were kind of out in full force. Hmm. And and Manchester United or well, the, the Glazers at the time were looking for a slightly unorthodox, bespoke boutique solution Uh, to how to deal with that problem that crisis um so they picked up john and so when i told john that i was back you know having had a year of football experience in my back pocket he he kind of jumped at the chance to bring me on board and so i spent uh kind of three years working with john very closely on a a number of different clients um i worked on the russian international olympic university which had kind of which was part of the legacy um of Sochi 2014 that they mm-hmm. were developing. Okay. So I worked a lot. I, I worked on that I worked on Manchester United, especially around their actually a lot more on the internal communications than their external actually. Um, I did some work on uh, WADA, I worked a little bit with the All England club. So I did a kind of a very interesting variety of different, different kind of work streams with different kind of clients. And quite broad, obviously quite centralised in the Olympic space, but of course Manchester United and all England were outside as well. Yeah. Um, so it was it was because it's such a small outfit, and you're given such a lot of responsibility so early. It was a really great kind of development uh, yeah, experience for me, working kind of as almost the right hand of John. Uh, during those three years, yeah, And the, the role yeah. was
0: brand building and communication, right? So uh, marketing communication, I guess. Uh,
1: yeah, how, did, how do you?
0: How does your legal background fit into all this? You know, uh... it was
1: it was it was a real baptism of fire because it's a very different skill set. Right. Um, because if you think about it on a very kind of layman's terms, legal language, legal messaging is very specific, very uh, kind of in some ways opaque to the vast majority of people um and it's incredibly kind of it's all about closing loopholes right it needs to cover every situation every eventuality leave no room for vagueness interpretation Mm. uh you know loopholes etc so it's incredibly dense whereas if you think about pr and uh kind of B to C communications. It's quite the opposite. It's kind of short, (laughs) short, pithy statements that are vague. The vaguer they are, the better. Um, And you're not trying to cover, you know, you know, notwithstanding, subject to A, B, subject, you know, subclause two. You don't do that. It's just like we're the greatest. Uh, We're the greatest for three reasons. Uh, Like that, you know, you know. So the tension between the legal philosophy of language and the uh, branding, marketing, communications uh, approach and philosophy to language are so different mm. that it actually gave me a really good get grounding and understanding of when and how to flip between the two. Initially, it was really challenging because mm-hmm. I found myself gravitating to a kind of a more legal way of thinking. And yep. John kind of had to hammer into my head. We're not trying to cover every eventuality. We're trying to be bombastic. We're trying to be short and sweet we're trying to be impactful so leave it open for know, interpretation <laughs> you have to know when to gravitate in one way and when to gravitate in another way so mm. it was um it was a really good way to like i said to have a, two different schools of thought in my head at the same time and being able to flip between the two as and when necessary interesting
0: i mean it sounds like what you were doing there obviously then kind of led to the next one right which was director of communication for Sports radar now again, uh, you know most people know Sport Radar, but uh, we can do a little quick intro and background on them. And, um, and you spend a good four years with them, uh, in 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 their I guess marketing communication side of it, and you know. Uh, so talk a
1: bit about that. Yeah, I'd I'd love to say that I saw Sport Radar coming, uh, that I saw that they you know that they were going to be as big as they have become, that they were going to be this multi-billion-dollar, you know colossus of the modern technological sports world but i didn't i mm. uh, didn't buy and, any chairs i obviously <laughs> well i mean obviously i had a key role in that but no i'm joking for me the integrity was really where i identified sport radar or where they came on my radar because mm. pardon the pun uh, because um i had done my last piece of work at at JTA for WADA. And I really liked the idea of marrying sports industry work with sport integrity work. It felt ethically really comfortable to me, Mm -hmm. uh, like fighting the good fight. Uh, And so I spoke to a few people in and around the integrity space in sport. And they said, look, there are really two areas. One is doping, which is very well established um, and actually quite bio biological and chemically kind of language filled. Mm -hmm. So Actually, what they said to me is, listen, if you want to kind of really get a foothold, build a reputation in a space around sports integrity that is developing rather than that is developed, you've got to look at match fixing because that is really the next big issue that sport is going to face as betting starts developing. This is going to become bigger and bigger problems. Actually, it's going to be easier for you to get a really solid grounding and develop a position in that space. And the follow-up questions, they said, listen, if you're going to do that, which we recommend you do do, you've got to look at Sport Radar because these are the guys who are pretty much at the vanguard of defenses uh, against match fixing. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to um, Sport Radar. They just so happened to have a role for their integrity services as a kind of head of communication. So I went for the job and got it, and that was really how I got into it. And right. so you know, just to kind of underline the point, my first role was really to promote and uh communicate all the progress achievements initiatives and partnerships of the integrity services of sport radar i really wasn't involved in any other part of that massive sprawling business okay and i spent about a year a year and a half doing that before uh david lampett who was kind of he had a number of titles while he was at sport radar but he was in some ways a kind of a coo fixer slash fixer for sport radar with regards to any big projects and big issues and crises that they had globally. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very well trusted by uh, the CEO and founder and Curl. And so David Lampick kind of worked in the London office, so did I. So he kind of started to realize and see the value that I was delivering and the visibility that I was delivering to the integrity services. And he wanted to really see if I could apply that to other parts of the business. So mm-hmm. I started doing communications for the betting piece, betting uh, for the for the streaming piece, for the non betting data piece. Um, And really, I just started getting kind of spread across further and further parts of the business. Um, And that was really exciting, because it felt very kind of, you know, there was a lot of recognition, a lot of respect came with that uh, new opportunities, new understanding of different parts of The business, and that's when I really started to understand how broad and how impactful Sport Radar was. Because it felt like they were kind of engines of the new opportunities and revenue streams for sport from every corner of the world. Whether you were, you know, a national badminton federation or an international wrestling federation, or you know, whoever you were, it felt like you had to touch Sport Radar's business in some shape or form. Or at least be aware of them or understand what they were offering so it was a really great way to to kind of get a higher awareness of where sport was heading um and then towards the end of the four years was when paspa uh, was repealed in america and we you know i became kind of the key chief, uh, the chief engine of lobbying and communications in the u.s around betting and how betting was going to open up the opportunities the challenges how to do it right how Sport Radar could support so many aspects of that offering, whether it's from integrity, whether it's from data provision, whether it's from streaming, um, clarifying things for stakeholders who weren't aware of what was going on. So it, that became kind of my final focus at Sport SportRadar. Um, and I think I spent about six six to 12 months doing that, spending a lot of time working out of the New York office. And really at that point, I was like, you know, four years there, I was ready for something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And that kind of brings, I guess, uh, brings us yeah. to the, the, to the ATP.
0: ATP tour. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, and I, I have to admit, uh, I like sports radar tour. I've been trying to get Carson on the call on the podcast too here, and to sort of really hear the full story there. Uh, it's very interesting, and uh, yeah, they've obviously done uh, very well there uh, with their listing. I'm not sure what the market cap is at the moment, but I think at one point in time it was ten billion, right? So, I'm assuming yeah. this. The general decline in the last uh, year or so it's probably with a bit less than that, but uh, it's still uh, it's an amazing story there. So let's talk about ATP Tour because uh, again it's a very different role, right? Um, you were on the player side and the and the player council part of it. Um, I guess uh, representing the the player part of it uh, with with the ATP Tour. So talk us through that and and uh, you know how it all works and uh, you know some of the things you've done there.
1: Yeah, the ATP role if i'm honest is probably my dream job uh i was just surprised that it came on my doorstep so quickly mm-hmm. um or when i was comparatively young uh, i was 37 when i got the job which felt very young to me uh, but really it was it was it was something i was building towards um but um it came uh, across my door because my brother was a professional tennis player and he randomly had a conversation with Sergei stakovsky the ukrainian player who's now currently you know bravely part of the defense. Um, He retired from tennis in order to join the defense uh, against the Russian invasion. Uh, 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 But at the time he was on the player council. Uh, He's a very smart, very opinionated, strong willed uh, individual. Um, And he was just talking to my brother randomly. this was at Indian Wells a few years back. Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, we're about to have our elections. We're really looking for some, some really smart people who can apply for the player board rep uh, position my brother kind of dug a little bit deeper and basically said, listen, uh, my brother ticks all the boxes that you've outlined apart from the fact that he's not an ex player, but he knows tennis so well, you know, it's not like he's alien to tennis. So you should speak to him. So that was kind of, that was really the intro. I, I had a chat with sergey and, and he said, listen, I do think you've got a, a really interesting um, background and you could be exactly what we're looking for, but you know, I'm just one vote. There's, nine other guys on the player council and so i spoke to them or most of them and got elected long story short um i uh um i kind of i think they were looking for someone who was obviously very player focused uh they were looking for someone who understood business who understood uh campaigns crises who understood messaging who understood how to convince internal and external stakeholders they wanted someone who was tenacious um so i think i I Basically, like I said, I ticked a lot of their boxes and I got elected um, at the Rome tournament. It was all quite quick between Indian Wells and Rome. It was only like two or three months. Um, and so I spent, yeah, three and a half years as a member of the three-man team on the board that represents the player side. And on the other side, you've got three guys who represent the interests of the tournament side. Okay. And then in the middle, kind of as a mediator referee, you have the chairman slash CEO, At the time, so when I joined, it was Chris Commode. He was both the chairman and the CEO. By the time I left, uh, that role was split where Andre Galdenzi was the chairman and Massimo Calvelli was the CEO. But effectively, the dynamic was always the same. Three against three, often aligned, frankly, uh, often aligned in the interests of what benefits uh, men's tennis and tennis more generally. But obviously, because we are the two sides of uh, the tour, there were always times... And issues where we were almost diametrically opposed and in conflict, and I think that was, you know, it was a really challenging three and a half years, a really rewarding, eye-opening um, kind of. It fast tracked my development and understanding of of sports business and sports politics and sports governance at the highest level, um, but it was, it was, it was volatile and time-consuming and exhausting, um, and um, yeah, it was. Uh, I think I still look back at it very fondly. I still have very strong relationships with a lot of people in the tennis world, and I still you know watch the developments there very closely. Interesting. Let's maybe
0: just stick for it for a minute here, uh, because it is a, it's such an interesting part, of course, what you were doing there. Uh, um, and let's, let's, get, let's pick a, maybe an example here. Uh, if I just pick something which you had on your on your LinkedIn profile as well, that, you know, you were talking about the uh, the redistribution, I guess, of uh, price money, right, um, as well as, I guess, the gross in price money, um, and so on. Um, you know, what, well, you know, what is the you know give maybe give us some numbers or, or some examples of um you know what how is it split now uh, when it comes to things or uh what is the money which you know the the the, uh, the large uh, tournaments make you know um, is there sort of a formula if someone makes 10 million dollars worth of revenue a certain percentage should, should be in prize money or you know is it all completely arbitrary how's that so how does that structured
1: it's complicated to be perfectly honest. When I started, it was kind of relative. It was a, it, the, the amount of money that the different tiers of tournaments gave to the players was subject to a negotiation. And it was a negotiation that was actually incredibly frustrating because it was really difficult to anchor it in anything because it wasn't linked to a formula. It wasn't, if you spoke about past performance, you would always. Receive the response here yeah, but past performance is no indicator of future performance if you try to reference increases in revenues on the tournament side they would say well yeah but you don't see the costs so it was really it, it felt incredibly frustrating because it felt like a lot of the times we were arguing in the dark right. and at the time the tournaments really had pretty much no obligation to disclose either their revenues or their costs to the atp well they did to the atp but not to the player group so yeah it was kind of put your finger in the air and should we have a six percent increase this year or a five percent increase this year or a ten percent increase this year and it was always a super volatile super aggressive uh, argument that would happen at the end of either a year or a period of years if we had managed to secure a multiple year deal mm-hmm. uh, negotiation and it was just yeah it was just what it felt right we would sometimes reference an increase in a in a in a TV deal for, a, or we would reference a sponsorship deal. Right. We were trying to cobble together pieces of information to back up a general percentage increase of prize money year on year, and it was just horrible. And so, really, that was kind of that was the climate that I walked into um, when we were doing this. And it became clear to me that there had to be a better way to do this. It just felt so amateur, so unprofessional, um, and so untransparent and so mm. really for me the focus was how do we find a system a process a mechanism that uh, and maybe even as part of a bigger vision that really addresses this fundamental problem and this is really it kind of coincided with chris's uh, re-election and you know long story short i thought i thought we needed someone new chris had done two terms already he'd done six years uh Uh, or five years at the time, but he was going to do six years by the end of his term. And I said, look, we need someone new, Mm -hmm. someone who's really going to tackle this issue, if not more, head on. Um, And so we we decided not to renew Chris. uh, And we opened a process, a very kind of objective process through Russell Reynolds as the recruitment agency. We kind of cast Mm -hmm. the net globally. We looked outside of tennis, outside of sport, We spoke to people from all walks of life, all parts of tech companies, all kinds of people. And it was interesting because Andrea came in uh, as an ex-tennis player um, and he was incredibly clear about what needed to be um, addressed. He had this vision, uh, four-pillar vision, which was focused on transparency of numbers from the tournaments, profit sharing to the players, uh, kind of greater certainty and lock-in in terms of the calendar and in terms of increasing our Masters events to make them bigger yeah. events and uh, more rights aggregation around, you know, the IP that the tournaments uh, own in order to try and kind of collectively sell things and have, you know, a better position in the market. And it was incredibly compelling. Um, and so, you know, he he, he got voted in, um, you know, full disclosure, he wasn't my first choice, but he did get in. um, And uh, he, unfortunately, like within three months of starting COVID hit, right? Right. Yeah,
0: I was gonna say, I mean, you were there during the the whole COVID period. Yeah,
1: so that January, the first January he started, we had the Australian bushfires. So he was fighting fires quite literally, uh, like from day one. And then two months later, COVID kind of began causing shutdowns. And for for a tour, where you've got players from every corner of the world flying yeah. to every other corner of the world yes. every week Nightmare. Um, and all having different profiles, different, you know, have they had COVID? Have they not had COVID? Have they had the jab? Have they not had the jab? Do they want to have the jab? Do they need to have the jab if they're going from Brazil to India or from America to Sweden? I mean, it was a mess. Mm. From an, an operational and logistical, you had to basically rewrite the rules every few weeks because... Everything was changing. You had to move the tour around. You had to replace events. You had to change the ranking system because it was unfair to those that couldn't travel. How do we mitigate the impact on those who can't travel for no reason for through no fault of their own? And it was it was a huge amount of work to keep that whole thing ticking over, to make sure that the tournaments didn't go bust, to make sure that the ATP itself didn't go bust. How do we make sure that the players can still play and make a living and survive, especially the you know, lower level players? um how do we make sure that they know what they need to bring to each event to get in can they get in are the planes flying are the airports open it yeah. was a it was a nightmare and the thing that i always appreciate about andrea was he dealt with all of that with massimo and he didn't use that as an excuse to stop working on his vision hmm. he could have easily said listen the vision we're gonna have to park that because we're in survival mode yeah. he didn't he was like we're gonna do both at the same time i'm only here for three or four years guaranteed I'm not going to, you know, this COVID thing could take a couple of years. Um, we need to, we need to progress this. Cause this is not, you know, I, I may not get renewed if I don't show progress on the vision. So he, he fought hard to move the vision forward. And, and I think, you know, I think that the vision was all but finalized when I left at the end of 21. Um, I mean, I think it took another three months to formally vote through. Um, but it, I mean, I, I think it's worth from my point of view just referencing what he managed to do in that time against the covid situation so yeah. he's he delivered on the vision so there are we have those auditing obligations to the tournaments so that we have complete transparency right. uh, we have we have a profit share mechanism which means that basically above a, a certain baseline and that baseline increases year on year of prize money there is a profit share if there is a profit mm-hmm. so if a tournament creates a profit that any further profit 50 percent of that goes to the players right. what that actually creates is a genuine joint venture mentality in the players because now mm. the players know that if they somehow promote support contribute to a tournament and that tournament makes does even more money yep. and therefore does a profit that comes back into the coffers and that yep. was not nice. really the case before yep. you didn't really like it. it was very much an us and them mm. mentality um You've now got long-term sanctions for the biggest events and some of them are are now converted into two-week festivals so bring them at least in in logistics closer to the grand slams and obviously we'll we'll try and build from that um so that 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 the kind of the sea change that occurred at the beginning of the vision meant that there was 37.5 million dollars of fresh compensation that came to the players that didn't exist before
0: yeah, that's serious money, and, and I like it. I have to admit, uh, I, I wasn't aware of all those, uh, some of the things you just mentioned, Um, but that's amazing. Uh, now, j- just another question here, coming back to the, the COVID part of it, if you might, maybe you recall, how many tournaments ended up were canceled because i i remember i was following a little more of the grand slams what was happening to them during covid and and the, you know the struggles they had to keep hosting them Um uh, but having it i don't remember as much reading about it, the atp tour you know how many events actually just couldn't happen at all and therefore you know whatever is the normal number of events uh 50 60 events a year whatever the, the atp tour has how many did it shrink to in 20 and 21 do you have some rough numbers sir.
1: It's a good question. I mean, I, I don't, um, off the top of my head, I mean, we we lost some of the American tournaments, especially right at the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, Indian Wells and Miami were kind of the first to fall in that March. Right. Asia, Asia shut down almost completely, so that right. shut down uh, four or five tournaments towards the end of the year. Um, and then we just had sprinklings of events that were either not possible, had to move, um, or I think the main thing was a lot of the tournaments – and to their credit, a lot of these tournaments tried to continue to host, okay. but the the big challenge was that they just didn't have the revenues uh, because revenues. tennis, tennis as a sport, is disproportionately reliant on ticketing revenue. Right. Okay. Uh, if you look, you know, you look at the NBA. Obviously, they record they rely on indoor arenas as well, but they have huge yeah, broadcast TV contracts. contracts. Correct. Uh, whereas we didn't, we relied overly uh we lent too heavily towards ticketing and so when ticketing restrictions came in where you could have either no no people or 10 percent of people or half of the people that took a sick that created yeah. a significant Nichols. impact on the bottom line and so therefore the tournaments even when they were able to run they were doing so with the asterisk saying guys we're gonna have to like severely cut prize money um, right. because and and so that became the painful thing that players were obviously relatively disgruntled that they couldn't make money and that they were still technically competing and therefore they felt somewhat entitled to achieve receive the money because they were still doing the work. Whereas tournaments were trying to justify to them that um, we just don't have the revenue yeah, to do that. We, we, we trying um, to survive this, correct. Yeah, we're trying to give you as much as we can. We're trying to make things work. But if you are going to play hardball, then actually it might make more sense for us just to, to go on ice for a year or two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, so it, it created a whole new level of tension because there was that distrust. The problem was we had this history of distrust that was created by these volatile uh, negotiations around prize money. So it kind of created a sense that when these COVID restrictions impacted tournaments and their revenues and therefore prize money, that there was something going on, that it was being gained, that yeah, it was yeah. being abused, and so that was it was actually like a real time reminder of how powerful and painful distrust at the heart of our, our product, our governance yeah. was to, to, you know, how how powerful, you know, like I said, how painful it could be. And so, sure. so Andrea, that's it kind of really, it really convinced Andrea that he had to solve this problem, no matter what was happening, bushfires, COVID, whatever. Hmm. If we don't solve the distrust, then we're not going to be able to pivot yeah, there or adapt we, to any yeah. situation. Right.
0: Yeah, I agree uh, before we move on uh, I sort of one last question I was just thinking of uh, the ATP tour obviously has um, is, is, like in a, in a football league is the umbrella body in it and sells um, I think nowadays at least the, the tour packages from a media point of view there was sort of they bundle it, right? I remember in the old days actually a lot of tournaments were st- selling their own rights, right? Uh, which it's, I think is is completely gone away. Who is? Are they selling it in-house or is it, do they have a major agency? I, have to, I can't remember. who is Who represents that now?
1: Yeah, so the, it was ATP Media was set up originally by the Masters Tournaments to sell Masters Correct. bundled right, events. Yeah. Um, and over time uh, the ATP realized that actually it made sense for ATP Media to effectively became become its broadcast arm and therefore right. sell the rights for bundle yeah, yeah. all the rights so they, right. so by the time I was there they they all were they were selling all the masters the ATP Finals all the 500s and a good chunk of the 250s right, and right. one of Andrea's kind of ambitions and I talked about this in the fourth pillar was to aggregate all of the all of the tennis tournaments so all mm-hmm. the 250s uh, and so basically ATP media would effectively own all of the media rights right, right. for all ATP events and go into market on that basis. Um, obviously Andrea wanted to go further and wanted to talk about data aggregation, he wanted to see if there was opportunities to bundle ATP with I don't know ITF or with with WTA or even mm-hmm. with Slams and that, those may come in, you know, phase 2 of his vision should he be re- re-elected uh, this year but right. he, he was of the opinion that you know he he I think the if I had to condense uh his philosophy into one line i would i would say he said he would say listen tennis has spent so much time fighting itself that it hasn't realized that the world is moving forward and we have f- neglected the fan so um so he says imagine that you're a fan in the uk or in the us or in various markets and you want you love tennis and you want to watch tennis you want to watch women's tennis men's tennis masters 250s grand slams davis cup he says imagine that you're that person how many apps websites and tv contracts and subscriptions do you need to have right. it is catastrophic to a sport nowadays where we live in a world where everything is aggregated and everything needs to be easy one click away you know one-stop shop to have all of this spread out and disaggregated all over the place it just disincentivizes it like it create it breaks narratives it breaks fandom it's and so he was of the he's always been of the of the opinion that we need to stop fighting ourselves and thinking that our fan has so many rival options for his time and attention and fandom if we don't make it as seamless and as easy and enjoyable for him as possible to be a tennis fan or her to be a tennis fan they'll just go to another sport or to video games or to netflix um and we'll lose them and it's way too competitive now to for us to kind of go well 20 years ago we were we were top of the pops what what have we got to worry about you know things are moving way too fast for that kind of laissez-faire attitude
0: Right. Yeah, and, and that's where you have the the there is the ATP app right ATP tour app I guess it's called um, which has a bunch of these things right you can subscribe to it right as, as a subscription yep. model there and uh, and I have I know I have some friends who do subscribe to it and, and they love it um, I think it's yep. it's a great service absolutely. Um, yeah, no, really interesting. I mean, we, I'm, I'm sure we could spend some more time on it, uh, because it's such, such a, a huge tour. B, um, like you said, you know, there's all these story, uh, conversations about merging it with maybe the WTA or other parts and, um, you know, how you make it again, even bigger, better, um, a more homogeneous, uh, approach. Uh, but, uh, I want to get to the world of esports now, which is obviously, <laughs> sorry where it you took are. so long
1: to get here. <laughs> no, no,
0: it's, uh, but it's good. It's, uh, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff in the, uh, in the parts we just covered here. Um, But, you know, as usual, you know, all the learnings you had and I'm sure quite a bit of the ATP stuff is what you're now bringing into the ESL Pro League as a commissioner. And, uh, you know, for the uninitiated, why don't we just, first of all, explain a little bit what it all is, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. the game you play, um, et cetera, which is called CSGO, uh, you know, which stands for... Counter Strike Global Offensive um, again for our non uh, esports uh, whatever crowd here, um, yep. and of course ESL is our friends of Cologne uh, now part of the larger network uh, which is bought by the by the Saudi group, by Savvy um you know so it's a big multi-billion dollar giant um and and they're i guess running the league and you were there as the commissioner um the same way i guess you have commissioners in the nba and other areas uh so let's talk about that uh, a the switch over
1: and b of course now what you're doing the switch over came because uh when we were when when i started at the atp the role was a technically a non-executive role which was meant to have like five meetings a year for about three or four days each Mm -hmm. Um, but the reality was it was nothing like that It was incredibly executive incredibly hands-on and uh, I mean I I wouldn't say it was a non-executive role I wouldn't say it was a full-time role but I would say it was closer to the latter than the former in terms of bandwidth in terms of time traveling I went to 20 tournaments in my first year Wow. um so that gives you an idea this was not five weekends a year um but as andrea as andrea came in he said listen i want this to be a more of a non-executive role you guys should not be dealing with player requests about you know wet towels and hotel windows um that's what we have a player management's uh executive team for right. um so he said you know go out and do other stuff so long story short i had a few friends in the esports because i'd first come across esports when i worked at sport radar when we started offering integrity services data services and streaming services for betting to esl esl was actually the first yep. client that sport radar works with this was back in 2015 we signed a deal i was there when carsten curl and ralph Reichart uh, signed a deal in at leaders yeah. in london oh. um and off the back of that, I went to ESL 1 Cologne in, in the summer of 2016, and I was blown away by what I saw. I mean, I cannot stress how eye-opening seeing your first tier one esports event live is. Yes, doesn't matter what you hear, how many presentations you see, how many speeches you listen to, how many conference panels you understand. That it, then you'll realize that it's just the same as the NBA, or as you know, as... Baseball, yeah, as ho- ho- ice hockey, whatever it—it really—it has all the same ingredients, the same passion, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, I—long story short—I had a few friends from that time. Spoke to them, and they said, "Listen, there's a new kind of governance model being created in CS:GO. Uh, it's actually very similar to the ATP governance because it's got the kind of the tournament provider or the stage on one side of the table and the talent." or the teams in this case in eSports on the other side of the table, and yeah. they need a commissioner in the middle. So I was yeah. like, great, I'm going to be the, and- the Andrea Gaudenzi of, um, <laughs> of eSports or of CSGO. Yeah. So I-, I went for the role, interviewed, and, you know, spoke to ESL, spoke to the board, and they voted me in, and that was August 2020. When was that? It was three years ago now, so 2020, uh, yeah, yeah, August yeah, yeah.
0: 2020. Just um, the early day, stage of COVID.
1: Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to meet all the people that I was working with in person, years um, because of COVID, but yep. um, but yeah, I, I um, so yeah, in terms of the, as you said for the uninitiated, you know eSports e- is a little bit like saying sports, right so every eSport is a different ecosystem, it's, you know an eSport, one eSport like CSGO is different to another eSport like Overwatch, just the same as netball is different from basketball yeah. right? to, to, to kind of to kind of band them all together in many ways can be incredibly misleading. So one of the most prestigious, one of the longest standing, most successful esports globally is CSGO, Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Uh, The game first appeared in, I think, right at the turn of the millennium um, in in, in, uh, Counter-Strike. Then there was a few versions of it, Counter-Strike 1.6, Counter-Strike Source. Then in 2012-ish, it became Counter-Strike Global Offensive and it's been going now for 10 11 years in that form. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes it so successful is that it's it hasn't really changed much. It doesn't get updated aggressively very often. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just a very traditional game, very simple game to understand. If you walk into a stadium and see it for the first time, you'll very quickly understand what's going on. The mechanics are shooting a you're shooting a gun against other people. Um, the the strategy is you you're a fiver side against another fiver side. You need to outflank and outthink people on maps, and that's it. Like so, the yep. skill the skill trajectory comes in your strategy and creating fantastic strategies, and in your mechanics. You know your hand-eye coordination, your aim, Correct. things like that. So, but the fundamentals, the basic entry level, is fairly easy to get on board with. Um, and I think that has what has kept it in such a good position such a well respected position um, absolutely it's a it's a global game you've got players and competitors from argentina brazil through to america canada through to all of western europe with a very strong history and pedigree in scandinavia you've got players uh, from south africa from australia china uh, very strong um, group of players from the former CIS countries, especially Ukraine, um estonia latvia so it's it's genuinely a, a global game uh right. with, with events in the calendar in every corner of the world so Let, let's put some numbers together here a bit here so as
0: usual um so first of all yeah, it, what people would refer to as a first person shooter game right that's yeah. probably the basic simple category uh, we have a team who, which plays valorant which is in a nutshell a similar game but uh you know there is some similarities so, so that's the game i'm probably a bit more familiar with um in terms of CSGO, tell us the global structure. Because you already mentioned, right, the team's obviously all over the world. Um, but, yep. you know, there's not, it's not a world league, right? You have leagues for Europe, et cetera, other parts of the world. Your role is for the whole global side of things or you are for a particular league uh, specifically?
1: It's a, it's a good question and, and probably not as clear as uh, I would like it to be in terms of something I can digest in a minute. But so the pro league, the ESL pro league is two seasons a year, mm-hmm. uh, five weeks each, uh, one in roundabout March, one roundabout September, right. uh, currently hosted in Malta. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this is these are two of the biggest kind of events in the calendar. The calendar is not owned by one organization. It's uh, unlike Riot or Activision Blizzard, who are the game publishers, and who, they are yep. what I would call game publishers who are active esport managers. Right. So they manage the ecosystem hands-on, create it, uh, you know, and uh, kind of coordinate it, it and control it very tightly. Uh, e- the CSGO landscape is very, is the game is created by Valve, but they are right. relatively hands-off when it comes to the eSport. Okay. And so what you get is a lot of independent uh, tournament organizers creating circuits or sub-circuits that somehow or other fit into a global calendar. Um, that um, So it's, um, you've got ESL, um, their Pro Tour, uh, which kind of has about, I would say, between 15 and 20 weeks a year uh, of the calendar they own with Tier 1 events. They okay. obviously have a whole bunch of events lower down the pyramid. Um, then you've got Blast, who probably own about 10, 10 to 12 weeks a year, uh, who, are, uh, who own different weeks and are Tier 1. Then you've got the majors which are are there are two majors a year usually two weeks each they're a little bit like the grand slams of csgo and those are right. actually although they are more tightly owned and controlled by valve they are actually uh, promoted and produced by a tournament organizer so valve will say esl can you do this one right blast can you do that one um star letter can you do this one um and but it's kind of I think if you were to summarize the calendar, you would say you've got two majors that are kind of Valve-owned but tournament organizer-produced. Makes sense. Then you've got two big events, uh, which ESL run, which are Cologne in the summer and Katowice in February. So those are kind of the four... You can call them the four grand slams of CSGO. And then around that, you've got a few other events. You've got the Pro League, which I just talked about, the two seasons for five weeks. You've got mm-hmm. the Blast Premier League, which I think is about four or five weeks twice a year. You've got a few standalone one-week events that ESL owns like IEM Rio, IEM Dallas, right. IEM yeah. uh, Shanghai. And and you put that all together. You've got a ranking system that kind of understands that. And you can start to see that in actually, in many ways, like the tennis calendar, which has, you know, tournaments that are independent around the world you kind of understand a ranking you understand who's the best who qualifies you understand what the highlights of the calendar are um and that's really the cs landscape that makes sense you've got in terms of the the game is i I talked about the popularity of the game even though it's 10 11 years old it reached its peak concurrent players i'm talking about general game game players Mm -hmm. of 1.5 million last year uh, sorry, last month in March, right. you've got um, the majors that I talked about. The, the biggest major that was done was just after COVID in um, Stockholm. That had a peak viewership of two point seven million, uh, and the prize money for majors is about one to two million dollars each for the uh, for those tournaments. Um, the total prize money for the CS:GO year plus or minus around 18 million dollars in total that's what it was before covid mm-hmm. uh, in 2019 what other kind of kpis might give us yeah, a those, those are some significant numbers there um salaries i think the salaries of the players so some of these players earn anywhere between twenty to fifty thousand dollars a month so they are to fifty thousand dollars a month yes for wow. a, for a top csgo player um it's not easy being a csgo player because you travel a lot there are a lot of events uh, there is a lot of traveling um and so yeah it's it's hard work <laughs> i don't no, know absolutely. Be-
0: but that those are these are huge numbers and I mean, now you know we we own several esports teams here in asia uh in different games um but our numbers are just completely different right uh, you know what we playing uh, players players here um if you compare it to a regular salary in Thailand or in Indonesia, um, it's a salary of a manager or even director level at some time. So people maybe similarly would say, "Wow, that's a lot of money." but compared to a you know what the numbers you just threw out here, um, you know, it's not. It's it's a fraction of it, and and that's why I can see why a lot of times these these esports teams struggle to figure yeah. out how to make money. Especially, you know, I, I don't know how much it is in in your league, uh, but a lot of times the a lot of the price money stays with the players too, right? It doesn't even the the yeah. team doesn't really keep a bigger chunk of that. And uh, so I, I think there there is definitely something wrong with the economics, in my view, a little bit what we talked about with the ATP tour, where you know it was maybe not not as well distributed, maybe. Um, or fairly distributed as it could be um, and that's obviously comes becomes from the strengths of the of the of the publisher or the developer right who uh who, who controls everything at the end of the day right and makes large sums um, but it really doesn't trickle down yet into the world of into the esports world in my view um, you know what would you say maybe would you sort of agree with that general statement i think
1: i think that brings for me that brings two interesting points the first one i'll deal with quickly which is I think it, it really you're right that the publisher really holds the destiny of the ecosystem in many ways. Frankly, yep. you know, no one can switch off basketball, but Valve can switch off CS:GO for you at, yep. at the moment's notice. Uh, whether you're a player, whether you're a team, whether you're a tournament organizer, they can wake up one morning for whatever reason and go, we don't yep. want you to offer our uh, to offer or play our game anymore. And that that is incredible power uh, that is kind of really not uh, anywhere else visible um, right. in, in the traditional sport. However, you know, it depends on their generosity. You look at Valve and the uh, the kind of prize money that they distribute on for the Dota International. It's, you know, millions and millions and millions of, pound, of dollars used through the battle Pass, which is effectively a system which allows each game player of Dota to buy items within the game that they love in the full knowledge that a portion of that money... Will go into the prize pool Absolutely. for the event. Yes. That is like so. Effectively, players are funding or kickstarting the prize money. Um, and actually, the Dota players take great pride in building that number year on year at the international. 40-50 yes. um, so, forty,
0: fifty million. I think it was the yeah. Last time, right?
1: uh, the prize money is eye-watering now. So Correct. for a team that wins the international, they walk away. As yeah. a group of five, with I know somewhere between yeah. six to ten million dollars to distribute between them. So they I make, it was more, I think last more.
0: time it was under like 15 million, whatever. I remember. It may yeah, be. It, I mean, it, it's huge, you're sums. Making absolutely, multi-millionaires
1: huge absolutely. overnight. Um, correct. And then so, so Valve also gives stickers to in CSGO, they create stickers for every major where effectively players similar but not quite the same players can buy stickers to put on their weapons mm-hmm. in the knowledge that that money gets shared with the teams exactly it's an in-game item um, market right. so you're right in terms of the power of the publisher uh, to your other you you almost seamlessly um, led into the the whole point of the Louvre agreement which was exactly what you outlined so we were in a situation where teams uh, and organisations uh, like Liquid, like Fnatic, like Astralis, all of these big names, they were now they've now have teams in loads of different games, right? Yep. So they've got a team in CS:GO, they've got a team in League of Legends, they've got a team in uh, you know Valorant, whatever it may be. Yep. And they started to kind of look at these games and going how do how, how do these games stack up financially for us? And it became clear to your point that the costs on the CSGO side were pretty high, especially with these salaries uh, and not making a lot of money from prize money because that tended to go predominantly, as you mentioned, to the players. And it created a dynamic where ESL effectively realized that they had to provide a greater trickle down of their revenues down to the teams that were investing in their ecosystem, in Mm -hmm. their tour. And that was really the birth of the Louvre Agreement. So, you know, I think it... It was, it started in, the conversation started in 2019 and were finalized in 2020. But the idea, the the original gem or seed of the idea was how do we distribute money that we make from our sponsors, I'm talking as ESL here, how do we as ESL distribute money from media, from sponsors, through to our teams, our participating teams, so that they can continue to fund and invest in CSGO. And so we created, through the Louvre agreement, uh, a mechanism and a waterfall which allows teams to share in that number. And then once that number is formalized, it is shared amongst the participating members in a in a distribution matrix based on performance and viewership and other kind of metrics. So mm-hmm. it's really, and now it's got to the point, I'm, I'm really proud to say that you know having spoken to teams recently, some of them have said, listen, for us, CSGO is now one of the most kind of profitable parts of our business because of the new revenue streams that we get. So if you take the revenues that we get from the stickers that I mentioned at the beginning, from yeah. effectively from Valve, add the money that we make from the revenue shares from these kind of, let's call them, member uh, leagues. So Blast have got their own member league. We've got our own member league, which is the Louvre Agreement. Um, the revenue that comes from that, so those revenue streams now mean that we can, we are now in the black, whereas in the before we were almost struggling to fund, self-fund these verticals within our organizations. Um so it's 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 been a real turnaround. Um but it's also been a a recognition of the history, the pedigree, the investment, the time, uh, the the effort that these teams, that these players put into CSGO and make it what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um and and what's so encouraging is that in the background is you've got a game that is breaking its own records 11 years after it was released it doesn't need you know all kinds of new fangled patches and spells and uh you know revolutions within the game to kind of fuel its fan base and fuel right. its playership base having said that i would be remiss not to say that what made things even more exciting for me in my role today is A couple of weeks ago, finally, Valve announced the long awaited CS2, uh, which is effectively after years of some within the ecosystem saying, Yeah, no, CSGO is great and and we love it, but it's been like this for 11 years. We would love to see some, uh, like a real step change upgrade. It's now finally Valve are moving CSGO to their latest source engine, source two engine, which will bring a whole bunch of. Upgrades in terms of gameplay mechanics and um, and and actual visuals um, and speed of um, you know the actions per minute and and tick things like that. So when so is that launching? Know. When is that happening? Or <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Oh, no, okay. that, no one knows. So it, they, they've told <laughs> us that it's going to be this summer. Okay. They've also told us that the first major in CS2 will be in next March. Uh, it will be hosted in Copenhagen everyone's really excited about that but no one and everyone knows that the last major on CS:GO will be in Paris this May mm-hmm. but there's a lot of uncertainty between what's going to happen between May and March when the game opens to to players and when the game opens to the esports ecosystem and how that transition is worked out uh, but even though there's that uncertainty i mean the the community the, the hype that is now around the community in terms of the players in terms of the the elite professionals but also in terms of streamers people who are now who left csgo to go to valorant are now looking back over their shoulder going hello i might come back for cs2 this looks super exciting right. there's a lot of buzz around cs which probably cs was a consistent high performer but the level of buzz that's kind of the icing on the cake now is really exciting to be part of frankly
0: yeah, yeah cool i like it i like it um a couple of quick questions here one is um, and it's interesting when you were talking about it earlier, how ESL, which is let's say the operator, right, of the league yep. uh, of tournaments, similar in in the in the ATP tour earlier, right, which you have the the, the operators of the tour events, um, how they actually helping uh, fund the ecosystem and not just the actual you know owner, which is Valve, right, and so uh, I guess the combination of the two that has been able to monetize their events uh, and generate, you know, good revenue streams there and share some of that. And on top of it is the in-game items or other things which obviously the publisher is controls and can do. Uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think it's a good way of doing it and, and hopefully uh, more, other, you know, many other of the other uh, Publishers will also look at it because it's clearly not the case yet in every in other in other games. So uh, I think that is I like that. Now maybe let's have a quick just a quick look at the team itself. Um, it's a it's a franchise league, right? If I if I'm correct, um, it's, a, it's a
1: yeah. Semi-franchise, I think. Okay.
0: So how do you, you know, so because, you know, I'm sure people have always heard about how much money people pay to buy a franchise, right, or to buy a slot to get in, et cetera. So how does it work with the ESL Pro League? Is it a bit of mixture of both um, or, you know, you qualify to get in or what's the sort of structure?
1: Yeah, so we, we started off with around 12 member teams. This, they, they signed the Louvre agreement before I started in around, I think it was March 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those guys get, those teams get a bunch of they get the value. So what, what that value is, one, they get to be around the table to make decisions and consult on the development of the Pro League and the other Pro Tour events, such as the IEMs. Right. So that's like, you know, you have a voice where you didn't have a voice. You have a seat at the table, number one. Number two, you have the revenue share, uh, which I just talked about. You suddenly have access to a portion of the broadcast and sponsorship revenue that comes into uh, ESL. And ESL, you know, has some significant long-standing. Um, and heavyweight non-endemic sponsors they've got intel partnership which is going on for almost i think more than a decade now but you even at the last major there were the likes of ital bank from brazil you've got dhl monster so there's a a really good kind of uh, spectrum of sponsors endemic and non-endemic that kind of pour into the top of that funnel Um, so that's the kind of the revenue share piece that now the teams get a piece of and then the third thing uh, that, that is part of the Offering is that they get a guaranteed slot into the Pro League. Wow. Uh, so the Pro League is now a 32 team tournament. Oh, it wow. used to be 24, okay. right. but we radically changed uh, the format uh, in the last six months. Uh, it's a 32 team format. Uh, as I mentioned, 15 now because we added three teams, and we can come back to that in a second. 15 teams are member teams. They are guaranteed a slot in that Pro League every season. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to kind of Draft themselves into the other events as well. So you know they get to draft, depending on how well they've uh, performed during the season, they get to draft themselves either into IEM Rio, IEM Dallas, IEM Melbourne, uh, IEM Shanghai, um, all these um, you know Cologne and uh, Katowice. And then the fourth piece is really the bit that we're most kind of it's it's a work in progress, I guess, or the most work in progress, which is the aggregation of IP and sponsorship rights for this bundle so historically obviously you had each of the teams going into the market by themselves you had esl going into the market by themselves what we're now trying to explore is how exciting and attractive is it to for a sponsor in certain categories to go and say you know what i'm now going to explore and close a deal that encapsulates the biggest tournament organizer in CS:GO. And fifteen or up to fifteen of the biggest teams in CSGO, you're never going to own the CSGO space. But in one deal, that's probably the biggest percentage of the CSGO tier one landscape that you can own in one fell swoop. So, the immediate categories I think of are luggage partner to the pro league um, or Louvre agreement, airline partner, hotel mm-hmm. partner, food yeah. delivery partner. These are like these are the kind of things where I think when when any of our members were going out in isolation, they were struggling to pick up a deal because they just didn't have enough of the critical mass to attract a sponsor in that category. But if you say actually, look, we've got like I said, we've got the biggest TO and 15 of the biggest CSGO teams all in one bundle, do you want to become the official provider or sponsor to that bundle? Suddenly, we've hit a critical mass uh, that I think is much more attractive. You know, you took you've got 90 players and coaches, you've got 10s of EFG employees. And in terms of, you know, I mentioned these travel related categories. I, I did some preliminary research. One of the team, one of our teams, cumulati- cumulatively in one month spent 75 hours in a plane flying over 45,000 kilometers. Um, if that's not an advert for someone who uses a lot of planes, uses a lot of hotels, and uses a lot of luggage, I don't know what is. Yeah. So I, I would love to think that, you know, sponsors in those kind of categories can see who may not have been interested in single IP rights might think actually if Alex and his team can bundle a number of those IP rights holders together and give me that category as a whole that's a conversation worth having so I think that's we've started to explore those um, um, and those conversations and but I really think it it opens up new revenue opportunities that we couldn't really get into um, as i said when we were working in isolation
0: another quick question now you mentioned earlier i think is uh, the league now is played out of malta right if i, if I yep. recall um right. so you're bringing all 32 teams there or is there yep. some of it is offline uh, online only first and then you, you go on offline or how does it work no
1: we, you've got four weeks of group stages so you've got group a group b group c group d so teams Eight teams will fly in for Group A and then fly out. Group B, same again. And then after Group D is finished, you have the playoffs. So the top 16 teams go into the playoffs. And, you know, so the best team, sorry, shall we say, the teams that are knocked out of the groups will only be in Malta for one week. The teams that uh, get into the playoffs will do a minimum of two weeks. Of course, they might want to stay in boot camp. Uh, in malta if, if that you know helps them logistically but yeah minimum two weeks for those in the playoffs um, and so yeah it's not, it's not online uh, it was obviously during covid times but now it's fully uh, oh, fully right. land in malta
0: right right now again uh, maybe is there a reason there it's malta uh, is a government supporting it pay, putting money up or you know it's not the most logistically easy place where right? i mean putting it into i don't know paris berlin or london would have been would be easier mm-hmm. probably uh,
1: why malta yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. We we had a lot of really fruitful conversations with Malta Gaming who are Malta, I mean, I remember when I was at Sport Radar, Malta was very aggressive about trying to establish uh, credentials and base okay. for global gambling and betting. And they had a lot of kind of opportunities and breaks and and support for industries in that space. It looks like they're they're doing exactly the same in gaming. So they, uh, for example, Furia, which is a Brazilian team, one of our members, mm-hmm. uh, they signed a deal with Malta to, to try and set up their European satellite boot camp in Malta. So uh, they've also got a kind of incubator building where they kind of uh, nurture esports related businesses and gaming businesses. So, so the, the, to, to long story short, the, the government, the local government, is investing a lot of money and time and energy into establishing its credentials as a, as a hub. Of European, if e-sports. not global, esports and gaming right.
0: oh, makes sense. Makes sense okay. now. Maybe, sort of, uh, while we sort of slowly winding it down here, um, let's have a maybe step outside of your own just own world of CSGO. There, um, if you look at Uh, The gaming and esports world in general, Um, it was Mm -hmm. hot, very hot during COVID, right? I think it was uh, clearly one of the sort of hottest industries out there because it was still happening, right? Uh, You know, you were able to play online still, Uh, you know, much more people were going into it because maybe extra spare time or whatever or less other things you could do outside, um and that has cooled off right if uh, if anyone who follows the industry at least um you read a lot more about um you know the cool off you know or the what do they call it the, the the esports or gaming winter um you know and you've seen what happened with face face clans uh you know public listing and, and where it is now so there there's a lot of dynamics going on um some are maybe self-created others just yeah maybe it was a little bit hotter than uh, and and it has calmed down where do you see that, um, if you take it as a whole, not just uh, within one game here? Um, what What is sort of your view
1: of that and uh, your, your thoughts on it? Mm-hmm. Good question. Uh, a lot of things spring to mind. Um, you're right. I think generally speaking, there was a lot of uh, buzz and hype um, and investment that came in from private equity and VC kind of towards the middle second half of the last decade. Um, and I think at the time, probably there weren't enough questions asked um because it was just everyone was piling in you know you it was the train that you didn't want to miss um and then what you had is the covid um and you're right in some ways covid uh created this narrative that esports was going to be the great kind of success story of covid if that's not an oxymoron or insensitive um but um the reality is we still host lan events right at esports so those so gaming did well esports we saved some money on not having to do events LAN, but we still missed something by not having, you know, the big Spodek Arena, 18,000 seats, the big Lanixis Arena, 20,000 seat uh, events. So it, we, we didn't get away scot-free, I think, is, is the way I would summarize COVID. But to your point, there was definitely a spike in viewership uh, for all of our events. And what was most interesting to us and what we worked really hard to ensure was that we knew that there was going to be a quote-unquote correction after COVID ended and people would kind of Leave the computer screen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But actually, what we found is that the, the, that the correction did not go all the way back to pre-COVID levels. So we managed to maintain, actually, a good number, if not half of the the, the spike or the right. the delta. We kept half of those on, and so our numbers uh, are kind of building from a, a new base. So I think that's been really encouraging for us as an industry. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Uh, the, you know, there's been a lot of talk about oh, uh, you know, post-COVID reckonings um and esports winters i think for me there are a few things i would say on that first of all i think a lot of industries are facing their winters now because of the the war supply chain issues uh, inflation interest yep. rates so it, it's a kind of multi-industry uh, winter and i think yep. esports just isn't Unique or doesn't doesn't isn't um, immune to that. So, what that means is that a lot of funding is having a second look at all of its portfolios, and so they are asking now tougher questions than they did or should have, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Is that a bad thing? I don't think so. I think it's a good thing that you know, internally and externally, esports organisations and stakeholders are being asked to be more prudent, cut the fat, reevaluate their business models. Um, you know decide which vert- which parts of their business they want to hold on to and which uh you know which i must have and which i should have so my feeling is if there is an esports winter i think the esports spring will bring a greater maturity um, and actually a more attractive um a more attractive kind of Look and feel to the esports industry. The other side, mm-hmm. of course, it's you know don't don't get me wrong. People are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be tough times, and I have the utmost sympathy for that. I don't want to kind of gloss over that, but I do feel that the industry as a whole will come out more robust and more investable and credible off the on the mm-hmm. back end. Right. Um, and the reality is, you know, look. Esports and gaming remain incredibly attractive. The, the fundamentals of its attractiveness are, are stable and consistent. But, yeah, first of all, geographic. Geogra- it covers the whole world, whether you're a PC gamer, whether you're a console gamer, whether you're a mobile gamer in places like India. It's a massive space that's growing. Um, yes. And that's because the younger generations is digital first, whether they're on their mobiles or on their computers, that's where they work, that's where they... Educate, that's where they socialize, that's where they uh, compete. Um, and so that, that trend is not going backwards. Um, and so computer games and esports will continue to be an attractive and growing proposition as the younger demographic uh, continues to go computer native. But, but the interesting kind of sub point that I would make is you're right, I, that point stands, right? The average esports fan is in his 20s actually if you compare that to tennis or golf they're in their 50s which is sure. one of the most frightening things about traditional sports yeah. and I was you know I did a lot of work around the ATP about what we do to address that but if you look at the numbers in a bit more detail 30 I think over 30 percent I saw a report over 30 percent of eSports fans are over 35 so it's not just a yes we have the demographic that all the sponsors want you know the young uh, you know young yeah. computer savvy disposable income blah, blah, blah. We've got all of those guys and girls, but we've also got the older generation who are bringing their kids, who are, you know, so we've got a good spread of demographics. So so my point being, it's demogra- the demographics are attractive. The geographies are attractive. It's digital first, which is the way we're heading. And also it's a gateway for what I would call kind of macro trends, whether it's the metaverse. We were doing the metaverse before the metaverse was the metaverse. Right. If you think about, you know, the concerts the, yeah, that were Fortnite. being hosted on Fortnite—that right. was that's a metaverse, right? That's Absolutely. Digital art of, digital avatars, digital avatars meeting in a single space to commune and enjoy and socialize. Yeah. That's what we were doing with that. Digital item ownership investment—we've been doing skins for years before NFTs even Correct. knew that NFTs existed. Yeah. VR—we've been doing exciting things in VR and AR for years. If you look at the recent announcement, Vertex are doing like this beautiful. Virtual reality um, arena and experience uh, for CS:GO, but they've been doing it in other games as well. Um, you know, we we are kind of the vanguard, the gateway drug, the guinea pig for all of these macro trends in how people are going to interact and enjoy entertainment and socialize. So, those fundamentals don't change. Uh, there may be a, a tougher few bumps in the road for through this quote-unquote esports winter, but as I say, I'm pretty bullish on where esports will be on the other side, um, and. Will be the better for it, I think. I like it, and, and
0: it's a perfect. I think it's a perfect place place to stop and and uh, and leave that uh, out there. Uh, such a great summary. Obviously, because we're in esports too, uh, I like the sound of all of it, uh, and I would agree <laughs> with most of it as well. Uh, is that the challenges are there, and some of it is clearly macro related, um, not necessarily industry specific um and that, you know and the whole world will go through it um but i do agree i think esports and gaming of course is which is the overall the larger piece anyway um still has plenty to go um and will continue to grow uh in, in all sort of areas and, and you're right in the middle of it there with esl so exciting times uh, alex thanks for sharing all this here uh, i think we, we really left it uh, nicely at a, at a good spot here and uh, hopefully we'll keep
1: talking uh, and doing some more in the future I'm sorry I went a little bit longer. I do get a bit animated, but I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Absolutely. No, it was uh, was, uh, worth spending that extra time. So thank you very much. Have a great day in London, and we'll talk again soon.
1: Thanks. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts